Hey there, listeners. A quick new update for you that I promise is going to be shorter than the last one. First off, Patreon members at $5 a month or higher will be able to listen to ad-free episodes starting at episode 100 and going forward for basically as long as this podcast keeps going. You can listen either in the Patreon app or through Spotify, where you can get an exclusive RSS feed available only to Patreon members. This is one of the easiest ways to support the podcast for just $5 a month, and I hope you enjoy your ad-free experience. Second, those single barrels are almost here. The Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac and picked with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, and the two Jack Daniels Barrelproof Ryes are on their way. Patreon members will have exclusive discounts and prime access. Even a dollar a month means you'll have a few hours more to get those bottles before they're released to the public. Last thing, there are now two spots available in the monthly bottle share club available to patrons at the $25 a month tier. If you're interested, I wouldn't hesitate. I expect the spot to go quickly. If it looks like it's all filled up and you're still interested, shoot me an email and we'll see if we can open up just one more spot. With that, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are once again traveling literally around the world to um, still the same day, just barely, but (laughs) to the far east coast of Australia to visit Cape Byron Distillery. And to talk about that, we've got Eddie Brooke, founder and CEO, up super late for us all the way from Australia. Eddie, welcome on. Thanks, David. Great to be here, mate. I'm, uh, yeah, it's in the late, late hours of Friday here, so I've got a whiskey in front of me. And I'm uh, no, really, really stoked to be on, um, on the show, mate, and chatting all things whiskey. Awesome. So before we get uh, too into things, I just want to give a quick shout out to Fred over at Anthem Imports, who's been uh, introducing me to a bunch of different places, but including Cape Byron. And so uh, if you want to look up some really interesting brands coming into the US and elsewhere, Anthem Imports, uh, just do a quick Google search to be able to find them and see what brands they got. And with that, let's jump right in. So, Eddie, let's do the origin story for Cape Byron Distillery. Yeah. So, um, mate, we've got quite a tale of how I suppose we all came to be. Firstly, you know, Australia in the world of whiskey um, and spirits, you know, a lot of people forget or Australia go, where the hell is that? You know, you, you, everyone looks to the map or starts spinning the globe around. Um, but as a country, we're, we've, we're gaining a great reputation for spirits. Um, but my, you know, how the distillery came to be um, was was really the chance meeting and the coming together with a legend um, in the world of Scotch whiskey called Jim McEwen. And this guy, um, for, you know, look, whiskey drinkers listening to this, um, you know, he was the master distiller of Beaumont, or so Beaumont and then master distiller of Brooklady and, you know, creator of the Octomore, G- Octomore whiskey and um, the botanist gin. And, you know, he's known as the bloody Bruce Springsteen of single malt whiskey and just a legend. Um, and uh, I'll tell you the story because I hope everyone's probably drinking a whiskey listening to this. That's the way it should be. Um, but I was working for a spirit company in Australia and um, at the time we had the opportunity, I was managing Brooklady in Australia and had the opportunity, Jim was coming over and for, for me to put on a tour for the great Jim McEwen, I was just beside myself. Like 
in the way I put it, imagine if you were a young boxer and you got to put on a tour for Muhammad Ali. You know, that was kind of the level of, uh, you know, how much of an idol this man was to me. So I was just beside myself. And um, anyway, we did a 22-show sellout tour around the country and 100 people packing into auditoriums and whiskey halls and listening to the, you know, to Jim's stories of Isla and, you know, these great old whiskey tales and drinking the man's incredible single malt whiskeys that he's created. Um, and I was during that tour... Um, Jim and I just formed formed a real friendship and a bond. Um, and Jim is really, you know, just such a fa- family values and a values driven man. You know, he's always really about purpose um, more than anything. You know, more than a, there's more than just the whiskey in the glass. There's there's the stuff behind it, the people, the place, the actual reason for it being. Um, and I told him about my family and where we're from. So I'm situated in a little place called Byron Bay. Um, on the very, very east, we are the most easterly part of Australia. For any listeners that have been to Australia, we're about 45 minutes south of the Gold Coast, so just on the New South Wales-Queensland border. And my family for the last, you know, 35-odd years now um, have passionately been regenerating rainforest on our farm. Um, and we, you know, the folks bought 96 acres of a rundown dairy farm and it was complete desolate land. And, you know, the family's life work has been regenerating rainforests. We grow macadamias as well. And uh, it's now a thriving ecosystem. And, uh, you know, you could imagine it was me telling Jim about this. And we've just got such a love and a passion for the land. And it, it, we were just, the way I describe it, we were like two kids in a candy shop. You know, Jim, the man of flavor and, and concept and ideals. And we just talked about this and this idea really just sort of blossomed and bubbled to the top. And I remember on one part of the tour, we were traveling on the plane and he turned to me and he said, Eddie, I believe we were meant to meet and we're going to start a distillery together. So that was in 2015. And then in 2016, uh, we finished the distillery, we built it uh, on farm sits in the middle of our family farm and rainforest. Uh, so we're, you know, and we launched first our Brookies gin where we get to distill a lot of those native flavours and rainforest botanicals. We get to source, you know, forage harvest straight from our rainforest. And, uh, yeah, that was the the kind of the birth of, of the distillery that's, uh, yeah, that's been uh, and we've been sort of creating some incredible spirits and, uh, you know, now we've we've also just recently opened our whiskey chapter as well. And absolutely. So, you know, Jim, I mean, if you're listening to the podcast and this is going to be, you know, episode in the one, high 100s, 110s, something like that, um, you, you've probably heard of Jim McEwen at this point. If not, I'd be <laughs> really, really shocked. But uh, yeah, true legend. I I've, have never met him in person, but I've seen him speak a few times and been on a few tastings with him. And uh, even after 50 plus years in the industry, still got such a passion for whatever he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, doesn't hurt. He's also got his own private collection of Brooklady bottles uh, <laughs> and barrels that come out once in a while that are some of the greatest uh, scotches I've ever tried. So doesn't, you know, doesn't hurt. Yeah. But I, going back um, just slightly as as you're touring him around you had already as you mentioned you'd already been in the kind of spirits industry uh, as an ambassador yeah definitely so my um uh background so i grew up on the family farm and 
you know, had a sort of, uh, an, a, a, you know, a forced education. We call it, a, you know, putting kids to work, maybe child labour, whatever you want to call it. But that was an education in, you know, you know, caring for the land, regenerating rainforest and farming and, and also a, an immersion in food and flavour and balance. So I was always from a young age fascinated with, with food and flavour and especially stuff that comes from the land. Um, but, yeah, my, my career was um, in the spirit industry. So I, I started as an ambassador. Um, actually, well, cut my teeth more in the bar world. And this is, this is winding the clock back a bit now, um, but in bars and, and quite quickly found, you know, just, you know, a love for these, these great brands and a sort of real interest about, well, where are these from? You know, we're standing in a bar in Australia tasting these single malt whiskies from, you know, from these, you know, places in Scotland I've never heard of. And, you know, these incredible whiskies, you know, coming from, say, you know, the States all through the various bourbons we get to get or, or tequila, these origin stories. And I was just fascinated by it. And um, I suppose growing up, connected to land that was quite quite easy for me to to, to find that connection so um yeah it was a uh, when i was an ambassador i tell you what it was some of the greatest years i used to just get wheeled around and my job was to get people to fall in love with the brands and you know when you're working with you know products such as you know brook laddie or the botanist you know i was lucky enough to look after the um uh, the Buffalo Trace portfolio as well, and you know the Sazeracs, and uh, you know educating Australian whiskey drinkers around bourbon, and you know w with that we had you know some incredible, quite uh, you know alluring whiskies like the Pappy Van Winkles of the world as well. Um, but yeah, that was sort of my career, and and I and I've just loved educating people and about you know the incredible world of spirits, how they're made. Um, and yeah, and, and then from that led me into sales and marketing and, you know, worked with an importing and distributing company. And, uh, yeah, I suppose I was very fortunate to get a kind of, uh, a front row seat or the best education ever, which was, you know, how does the spirits game work, you know, and, and, and how do we, um, connect people to brands, but also, um, how do we get people to really sort of, you know, fall in love or what makes a great brand. And I think in this day and age, you know, before, you know, things were dreamt up around boardrooms and you have to have this crazy great idea and, you know, and then they, it was washed in this marketing just, you know, to use the word just bullshit, you know, and Jim used to tell me these stories when he used to be a part of these brands and he'd be sitting around, you know, boardroom, tail, boardroom tables and they'd be saying, well, we need, we're going to call it Glenn Metagas. You know, and uh, we're going to wrap it in a tartan, and you know, the you know, we're going to say that it comes down from the hills of the glens or whatever, and you know, it's just there's just so much, you know, kind of marketing sort of stories and tales got told, but it's the ones that had the true heart to them, the ones where you scratch the surface of the bottles and you see what 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 stands up behind them. And those ones are just the ones you fall in love with and you come back to. And Brook Laddie for me was was that, you know, it was it is the people's whiskey. It is you look at where how much of an impact that distillery has for their local community, um, you know, how much of a hands-on approach it is, how much of a sort of very traditional approach it is to whiskey. Um, and also the fact that it was a bit rogue, you know, you kind of you, you like to sort of 
uh, you get attracted to some of these sort of different approaches and also, um, yeah, different styles and sort of a bit of the underdog stories as well. So, yeah, I was very fortunate to have that career that, yeah, led me to, you know, to meeting Jim and, and now, you know, I was very fortunate enough to be mentored by him and, um, you know, especially when creating creating our spirits, um, you know, our Brookies Gin and our Kate Byron Singlemont Whiskey, um, it was an incredible experience, and uh, and yeah, so he was just over last year where we launched the whiskey, but uh, he's also part owner in our in our business, which is uh, which is very exciting. Before, uh, I guess, while you were an ambassador, it sounds like you 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 were saying you were already able to describe how spirits were made and the the process. Uh, so certainly, in you know, in theory, you had the knowledge down. Uh, when you realized that you wanted to start a distillery and start distilling for yourself, uh, who taught you like to make sure that the valves were on right and all these things? Was that also Jim, or did you have other? Yeah, so as well? that 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 was that was Jim. You know, um, you know, with you know how much information's at our fingertips, and you know, I used to educate people around the basics of distillation. And look, distillation is a quite a basic is a basic sort of concept and and some some basic practices around that um obviously when you're commercially distilling there's a lot more finesse that goes into it um into it along the way slight bit more you know we, we like to keep it big picture and romantic um before we get too bogged down in the detail but uh yeah my my sort of you know i, I did a fair bit of home distilling as well in the lead up to it um and for me especially around you know when we were we were starting the process of working out the recipe for our rookies dry gin you know we were using a sort of plethora of native australian botanicals and you know some really incredible stuff you know some native finger lime some native raspberry you know white aspen these we've got cinnamon myrtle and aniseed myrtle and all these incredible flavors but they'd never been distilled before you know they'd been you, you can taste them straight from the bush or straight from the land but distillation and flavor that, that gets extracted through distillation and different types of distillation, you know, creates very different flavors. So that was kind of a lot of the work I was doing in the background of it. But, um, yeah, it was really my education when it came down to actual commercial um, uh, distilling um, was from Jim. Um, so we worked on... Uh, the actual design of the still. Um, so we we had a great still maker in Tasmania. We um, who handmade a two thousand liter copper pot still for us. A very traditional, classic Scottish pot still. Beautiful long swan necks and uh, uh, on it, um, you know, creating really light, um, beautiful and delicate uh, spirit. Um, but you know, running that still. You know, this was how, how Jim used to run even the biggest stills at Brook Laddie or his time. It was all down to, to making sure from, from a distillation process that it's, it's done by hand. It's done by touch. It's understanding how to train your senses. It's understanding how to train yourself from, you know, not needing, you know, the sort of, you know, incredible amount of science that we do have to sort of back us up on the, those um the those you know a lot of distilleries will do that but it's knowing you know when to make those cuts um knowing how hard to run your stills um and you can get completely different sort of spirit characteristics from 
just the way you run your stills through a spirit run. So, uh, yeah, very, very fortunate to uh, not a bad teacher to have, I suppose, in the world of distilling. No, not at all. Sure. And uh, there are a couple of uh, follow questions to that, but I mean, this gin is dealing with some pretty strong flavors. You mentioned a couple of them already. So the it's 25 botanicals, 17 of them are native. Uh, one of the ones I know that's not native, juniper. Australia yeah. not good for, for juniper. <laughs> no. Uh, but I mean, just going through, again, you mentioned a few of them, but I want to reiterate a couple of these because I don't think I had had a gin that had maybe more than one of these before. And it was probably... Uh, anise, well, no, aniseed and coriander I had had, but things like cinnamon myrtle, um, finger and blood limes, the the what else? Uh, the the native ryeberries, the white aspen, lily pilly, dorigo pepper. I mean, these are they almost sound like name yeah. like made up yeah. names, right? <laughs> exactly. It, it's and that's not even getting into the the slow S L O W gin uh, yep. that has the uh, Davidson tree plums in there and. You know, these are flavors that outside of Australia and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe even outside of the region of Australia, the Northern Rivers that you're in, people aren't necessarily familiar with. So uh, you talked about it a little bit just now and, and on Lush Life, but um, I'd love to just go a little more into when you were testing out each of these flavors and each of these botanicals, um, how you were figuring out which ones worked, which ones just didn't, and finding out how to meld these incredibly strong flavors together yeah um it was a, it was a hell of a process you know and when we look to first create um our brookies dry gin you know we're very fortunate obviously with jim and the work he did with creating the botanist gin um the man knows a thing or two about how to balance a great gin so you know it's it, we were very fortunate around that we had such a great base of knowledge there to begin with um, but he was using things that were foraged from, you know, using botanists on, on Isla and, you know, using bog myrtle and all these different weird and wacky stuff. But in Australia, and, and, and I'm a true believer of, you know, spirits and, and food, but in particular gin should really capture the place where it's from. You know, we see these gins from all over the world and, you know, from the far reaches, you know, from Japan and they've got the characteristics of Japan and all of this. And when you look at Australia and our food and drink sort of culture, we have the most incredible, incredible, you know, rich culture from our Indigenous um, uh, indigenous history and our Indigenous people of Australia. And these native foods have been part of our land for you know, hundreds of thousands of years and they've developed through the uniqueness and uh, of our lands and of our rainforests. And Australia, as you may know, it's not a small place. So as you even just go up and down the east coast of Australia, you get these incredibly different climatic conditions. And where we are in northern rivers, to paint the picture, it's very much a subtropical region. We've got this huge belt of, uh, of mountains behind us um, you know, we're quite coastal. We are coastal right there. Um, but the temperatures have just sort of, it's one of the most densest subtropical regions and rainforest regions in Australia. And as a result of that, over hundreds of thousands of years, the, the, the sort of the, um, the plants that are, are, I suppose, endemic to that region, um, we are just so, such a rich sort of backyard, if you, if you call it that, of these incredible flavours. Um, so 
when we went out to, to craft this gin, we wanted it to really kind of capture that, you know, and capture the uniqueness of these rainforest botanicals. But, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, I think to, the quality is in the subtlety as well. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of these big ones and there's as many that we didn't use from trial um, that we didn't incorporate into the gin purely because they would have been too overpowering. So the first thing we did, uh, actually, I'll tell you a little fun story. So, um, you know, Jim arrived in uh, Australia and, uh, you know, he'd been here a, a fair few times before with doing whiskey tours and whatnot. Um, but he arrived and we'd kicked off. And Jim and I had already been on the phone and, you know, every sort of second day we'd be talking through recipes, sending back and forth and, you know, but day one was to immerse him in our world. And our world is a world of native native botanicals. So um, my old man, um, Martin, his nickname's Brookie, where it came from, uh, he is just beyond passionate about the rainforest. We call him the rainforest whisperer now. And one of Jim's nicknames is the cask whisperer. And, he, you know, he got that because he literally, he'd just be in the in the barrel halls of Brooklady just talking to casks. You know, he truly believes he's so passionate about what he's doing. You know, he going, who's that bloke in the back chatting to all these casks? He's like, hey, baby, how you doing? You know, how you, how's life treating you? You know, how's the spirit going? And, uh, and uh, he just has such a such an incredible relationship with with, with spirit. He, you know, it transcends just making a product for Jim. Um, but anyway, he arrived and we're bringing him into our world. So, Dad, the rainforest whisperer, um, Jim and I, we headed deep into the rainforest and we wanted to immerse Jim. Now, it was actually around September um, and September for us is when we're coming into spring and the rainforest is just teeming with life. And we got into this one part of the rainforest we have native raspberries going, you know, picking them off the tree. Jim, try this. We have native raspberries growing, and these raspberries taste like, you know, kind of like a crisp watermelon, like an unripe watermelon. And then we had, you know, white aspen berries, and these things taste like lemon lime sorbet coming off the tree. You know, the the size of a pea and the shape of a pumpkin. Um, and you know, we had blossoming um, aniseed myrtle. The the you know the blossoms coming off these, and we were in this one area of probably two metre radius and here we are having a feast and uh, and then, you know, and, you know, and then we've kept walking and Dad was telling tales of the, you know, talking about the rainforest, the birds and the different species and whatnot. Um, now, there's an unwritten law when you're, when you're sort of uh, eating bush foods in Australia um, and generally if it's a bright berry or if it's fruit, unless you know exactly what you're doing, you just don't eat the fruit. You know, I think maybe that's a hopefully a global thing. But anyway, we all kept walking and Dad was talking away and I was behind him and Jim behind us. Uh, and then after about five minutes, we turned around and unbeknownst to us, Jim, along the whole way, anything that looked like a berry had been grabbing and bloody eating and big, you know, bark and bee. He was in his mind. He was thinking that absolutely everything was edible in the rainforest. And uh, fortunate enough, he only got an upset tummy. Uh, you know, you could imagine the headlines on Isla, you know, you know, the Pope of Isla, poisoned by bloody Byron Bay gin makers. Um, but, you know, go, going back, you know, is that immersion into native flavours. And it, it's really the way sort of I think a good way to talk about it is 
you know, it's about balance. And Jim talks about it. Good way of painting it in your mind's eye. It's like it's like an orchestra. Let's use the analogy. It's like a painting, right? You've got your backdrop, and your backdrop is your clean, clear spirit and your water. Um, and we use a, a very pure Mount Warning spring water. Then you've got your main core botanicals, and those will, will create the bigger, bigger bulk of the picture. You know, your juniper berries, your coriander seed. You know, you're going to have your classic citrus in there, some angelica and some cinnamon, and those are your kind of more traditional. But the nuance and the beauty comes from those brushstrokes, and that's where, uh, uh, you know, interlacing and balancing in all of our native botanicals, and that's what creates such a beautiful piece in there. So that's where all the interest is. And I can tell you right now, if you're smelling it and tasting it, you're never going to really probably find that one key flavour that's going to come out. You know, you might get a note of it, but that's kind of what we want. You, it's it's the sum of all parts when those botanicals all distill together and they create something really quite special into a beautiful balanced gin. But um, took us quite a while to uh, get that spirit right. Um, and I remember the first time when we ran the still. Every time a still runs and a new spirit is born, it's always such a poignant moment in, in the distillery's life. And uh, and uh, the night we, we did our first, first distillation, it was just Jim and I and the family, um, and we were distilling late at night. We, you know, we, we were, um, we'd, we'd put the still on the day before. Um, we got a hot steep everything, all of our botanicals go into our still, and then we hang all of our native fruits and, uh, and delicate um, uh, native botanicals in what we call uh, Babylon bags. And Jim came up with this after um, he had he, he's an ideas man and he had this concept because if we put these soft, delicate flavours in the belly of the still, you can t- kind of think about it. It's a pretty brutal environment. You know, it's boiling away in there. And you, they'll just get they'll just get lost. But all that nuance and delicate notes that we're looking for will just get lost. Um, so he had this idea, and he's you know, he, and he said, Eddie, we're going to create Babylon bags. I'm like, Jim, talk to me. What the hell are you talking about here, man? And he said, put this in your in your in your thought. Um, you know, the hanging gardens of Babylon. You know, gardens attached, and these mists and vapors passing through it. That's what we're going to create in the still. Um, so all of that went in, and then we we started running the still late into the night, um, and all of that work that's gone into it, and we you don't really know until you push go. And this is a two thousand liter still. That's a lot of cost and a lot of ingredients that have gone into it, and and also you know the weight of hey, how, have we actually got a great spirit or you know? Uh, and and there was just silence, and the spirit was running, spirit was running, and it was completely cloudy. Um, and even this green tinge to it at the start, and we were looking. I remember Jim and I shot each other a look, and I was looking at him and like thinking, "Geez, what's happening here?" And we just kept running the spirit, running the spirit. And it was about the uh, I think it was about thirty five minutes into the the run, and you know you keep adding water and you're checking it, and this this beautiful clean note. What you what we find when we make our gin cut is we just get this explosion of fruit, you know, this incredible aroma and almost like candied, um, you know, sort of candied raspberries and candied orange and beautiful aniseed coming through. And the way Jim describes it, what you're looking for from your nose is 
it's like your nose can see where the clouds part on a, on a rainy day and the sun comes through. You know, those big, beautiful, clear notes will punch through. And, uh, yeah, that was that was the birth of Brookies. Um, um, yeah, back in, oh, when was that? October, uh, October 2016 was the, uh, the birth date of our dear Brookies. And, and we've been distilling and sharing and drinking ever since. <laughs> it's worth uh, noting. So yeah, those Babylon bags, I'd never heard of them before. So clearly, well, before, you know, uh, doing some research for this episode and um, there, you could see them if you go to the, if you're listening and you go to the Cape Iron Distillery website, as part of the About Us video, you see them. They're not called out as Babylon bags, I think, but they're, when you see the kind of white mesh bags uh, that, the fruits are being poured into that's those are those babylon bags and it's a i found it super interesting for a couple of reasons i mean number one you're you're still as you said somewhere else it was designed by a a german madman on tasmania <laughs> um so it's a as you said, it's fairly scotch style you know it's got the basic pot still neck line arm um but it's got a few oddities too you know the line arm is broken up by a gin basket uh, or a space where yep. you could put a gin basket i should say uh and one of the things that really stuck out to me was from the from the beginning of this distillery the whiskey was kind of secondary it wasn't part of the original thought um and Again, listeners, I promise we will get to whiskey. I know I've been remiss in the past yeah. few episodes. I promise, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think of a a gin still is usually either it could be pot or column or a hybrid, but it's generally like a high neck. You're trying to get a very clean, neutral spirit, if you will, at, yeah. at the end of it. Um, but using a but instead, this kind of went backwards, where it's using a Scotch style whiskey style still in order to make a gin uh, with a slightly declining, but almost even line arm and this 2000 liter pot. So was, I guess, what kind of um, base spirit just as a flavor profile or as a texture profile were you going for? Cause I imagine it wasn't kind of a neutral grain spirit if you're using that kind of a still. Yeah, definitely. It was, um, it's funny, I always get asked the question and, you know, here I'm sitting here with our whiskey today. Um, oh, you know, we, we, we did, it was always gin first and then you were getting straight to whiskey, right? And when we first launched and when we first started the distillery, there was conversation of whiskey, but it wasn't in our direct plan. You know, we were so, our goal was really crafting spirits that represented our our sort of backyard and our region and, and showcast our rainforest and gin is the perfect vehicle for that. And also then the other spirits and, you know, liqueurs and, you know, infused gins that we can do and variants of that. So, you know, we, we had, you know, I caught talk about, you know, having these sort of shelves and a few light bulbs sitting up there and, you know, that was a light bulb on a shelf, but it wasn't, wasn't actually in our immediate plans for making whiskey. Um, but for us, when it comes to, you know, when we were talking, having the conversations about the styles of spirit, but also the, the, the styles of stills to use, um, it, it was always around a really traditional Scottish pot still. And, and for one simple reason, 
pot stills are all about flavor. You know, you mentioned it before, you know, with if you're running different columns or different rectifiers on stills, you're going to get higher grade spirits. You know, you can potentially get distillation off a, a, a drawing out at higher ABVs and, you know, refined cuts, you know, and those really probably a lot more delicate, delicate notes. And, you know, um, and that's great. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the style of spirit we were wanting to make. And there's nowhere to hide in a pot still. You know, I want to make it that clear. You know, when you're when you're doing a single shot, you know, um, gin distillation, that is one of the bloody hardest things to get right. You know, when you think about it, you can do different forms of gins. If we took, you know, 25 botanicals and distilled them all just separately and then, you know, kind of balanced them out from there, that's fine. That's one way of doing it. But gin you've got to have all of those sort of flavors balance in there together but but for us the spirit was always about maximizing flavor so um you know when we look to you know the spirit you know gin itself is is you know you're starting with something that's neutral in terms of essentially you're starting with vodka you want to have the most clean pure you know, spirit, neutral alcohol that you can, you know. Um, and for us, we're very fortunate. We work with a, a great producer in Australia that creates a wheat spirit for us. And, uh, you know, it is just incredible. Like we could bottle it up and sell it and bloody win awards just for vodka. But, you know, we that, that sort of goes against a lot of our kind of, you know, principles on that. Um, but it's just so clean. It's got a sweetness to it, an underlying sweetness as well. So for us, for gin, it's perfect. You know, this single shot distillation, um, we use a few infusion methods. So we have, uh, uh, we put all of our kind of what we refer to as our harder botanicals, more um, traditional, the ones that need to get woken up. You know, your juniper berries, they're all dried. Your coriander seeds, they're dried. So what we do, we load those in the day before um, and, and you build this raft. You almost build it so they float on top of each other. And then what we do is we come in and we heat up the still. Um, and it's a very, very technical um, uh, temperature that we heat it up to just till it's too hot to touch um, is the technical definition um, uh, around 60 degrees. And, uh, and what you'll go there is then we turn the still off and we close it down. Um, all the hatches are down. And what that does, we, we leave that for around about 17 hours. And in that process, those dried juniper berries, cinnamon quills, all of those coriander seeds, what they'll do is they'll swell up and they'll pop and they'll release all of their flavour. At the end of the day, we're trying to extract as much flavour out of these botanicals and maximise them, getting it all into the spirit. Um, then day two um, we, comes the addition of our Babylon bags and also our native ginger into the line arm, into our botanical basket. Um, now a day of distillation for gin, it's my one of my or they're, they're my favorite days. So we actually do a first morning uh, harvest um, uh, at uh, when the sun's coming up um, for one of our particular botanicals, which is called a bottle brush. And uh, it's actually on a five dollar note of our Australian currency. But this is this incredible red um, flowering leaf. And, uh, and the reason for it is the Indigenous used to make a cordial from it. So they'd pick it, but they'd always choose it. You pick it first thing in the morning when it's soaked in nectar and honey and its own dew. 
um, and you'd soak it in water. But what we do is we go out first thing before the, as the sun's breaking when it's just soaked in that morning nectar. So that's when the flavour is at its optimal. And we pick and harvest all of that. Um, we balance in and, and add into all of our softer, delicate native botanicals into our bag Babylon bags. Those bags are hung from hooks we've welded on the inside of our pot still. Um, so they're, they're suspended. Uh, and then we have the native ginger stems, which is like a really mild lemongrass into the, the, the basket. So three different points of infusion and then the beauty and the magic of distillation happens and that's where all of those 25 botanicals distill together and you get this beautiful rainbow and cascading of flavours from the whole way through, from the start of your heart's cut towards the end of your heart's cut. You know, for us, you know, the four shots and the faints, the heads and tails, uh, we don't reuse those for when we make gin. Um, and there's nothing really, because we've got pure spirit, we're not getting any, um, you know, you're not sort of getting any real sort of methanols or anything coming off those, but what you're getting is undesirable flavour. Um, so your spirit has to be balanced. So, um, you know, you'll we'll run our four shots off for a while and then it's about capturing that heart always based on a sensory cut. And then uh, likewise, you know, at the start of the run, it's beautiful and vibrant and beautiful, a huge amount of fruit and top notes to our gin. Um, you know, you'll you'll be getting those sort of candied citrus and juniper and whatnot, and you'll get this burst of macadamia coming through, beautiful piney note of citrus. And then towards the end of the run, you've got a lot more earthy, woody characteristics, you know, that angelica and that cinnamon are we showing its head and, you know, a bit more of that anisee or a bit more of that cinnamon myrtle and dorigo pepper leaf. But you combine those all together and that's your middle cut and it's just, uh, yeah, just a beautiful, sweet and uh, incredibly delicate and balanced spirit. Um, but it's something you can go back to time and time again. We talk about it that we didn't want to make an interesting gin. We wanted to make a great gin. You know, I've got a lot of interesting bottles. I don't drink them all the time. You know, it's the great ones that I go, you know what, I want to make this into a gin and tonic, a martini, a you know, a, a variety of different cocktails for it to work in. And I've kind of got the same thing. And you, you mentioned it earlier. I think it's worth uh, restating that my favorite gins and it sounds like yours too, are those really the, the ones that showcase the place that they come from. Mm. I, I think of besides, you know, the Brookies, of course, uh, you mentioned the Japanese gin. So I think of Roku with, six botanicals in there very basic with like the juniper lemongrass shiso leaf that yeah. you know very basic stuff it's a very light uh clean gin it's um works well for sipping i would say i would use it more in a in a kind of asian negroni probably but yeah so i love my negronis uh <laughs> but even with ones around the u.s and around um different areas of england scotland and the ones that really use the native botanicals are the best. I get it. It's gin. Yeah. You have to use juniper uh, to call it a gin. You have to use juniper and you're probably going to use some of the coriander, the angelica root, some, you know, things like that, but there's such a wide world out there. And I think it's an extreme example. The Brookies is an extreme example because it's using so many things that nobody else is yeah. using. But it's a great example, therefore, of how gin can really represent 
perhaps more than any other spirit, the botanicals and the native landscape from which they come and makes it fun yeah. to explore. Oh, that's it. And you know, that like when people are trying, a, you know, um, you know, say in the States, Hey, enjoying a Brookies or, you know, in the UK or, or, or wherever they are around the world, you know, you want them to be captured and taken back to that place, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and for us, it's that capturing that, that, that the rainforest and how do we bring that into it, you know? Um, uh, and you want to have those incredible flavors and those incredible native rainforest botanicals coming through and shining through, but in a way that's enjoyable, not in a way that's like slaps you around the head <laughs> from a flavor fr- profile. And, um, and, uh, yeah, they, uh, I just, um, you know, enthralled with the world of gin and the, and the global world of gin. And, you know, my, my favorites are, are the ones that really do showcase where they're from. You know, have a sense of place, have a sense of, um, you know, of, of uniqueness and showcasing where they're from. And, um, yeah, you know, from Japan, you know, Australia, we've got so many great ones. And, yeah, all, all throughout. And that's where the, the difference in the new ones comes from. Um, but, again, you can have, you know, there's, there's that interesting and then there's good. You know, you can taste something and you go, oh, wow, I can definitely taste that. Uh, but is that a good taste? You know, that's, 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 uh, that's, that's the distiller's job is to make sure that those, those incredible flavors and unique flavors that are used are balanced and they're great, you know, um, you know, and, and a lot of time less is more, um, versus, you know, you're going to have, if you've got two or three or four really massive, big opposing flavors all fighting for, you know, for, for, for sort of front of mouth, if you will, you know, you get some pretty perplexing kind of mouthfeels and, and drinking experiences. So, you know, we like to sort of really, really make sure that all of our spirits have that sense of balance and, yeah, and sort of, sort of beauty to them as well. All right. And with that, the moment maybe half the audience has been waiting for, um, I really hope you didn't skip the episode <laughs> first half on gin because. I'm telling you, that's a next new world to explore, but we are going to go into the whiskeys now from Cape Byron. Uh, so from the beginning, like I said, whiskey, despite Jim McEwen's involvement, whiskey was not the first thing to be created. There was gin first with whiskey as a maybe idea uh, on the shelf, but it was gin first. What was that moment if you remember that you decided you know what i want to go into the whiskey as well yeah it was um it, it was funny you know being you know in the in the role that i was and obviously where jim and i came together and what jim is most renowned for is his work in in whiskey um but i think when you when you sort of overlay and get to understand what our family's passion is, 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 is it's about sort of, you know, giving back to the land. It's about regenerating rainforests and how can that spirit and the things that we create have a great impact on that and, and build a bit of voice and legacy for, for creating that. And I suppose that's the reason why Jim was so enthralled with, with this concept and, and now we, we all get to work together and uh, yeah, they're a, they're a hoot when they get together Um Jim and Barbara and the folks, it's, uh, they're, they're bloody danger. Um, but yeah, but it's not to say we didn't have the idea of whiskey. We definitely talked about it. 
And, you know, I, I talk about it, you know, having these light bulbs on shelves and you have these ideas, right? A lot of times you, you, you go back to them and you might dust them off and bring them up in conversation. And um, Jim and I, like when the first idea of the distillery came together, you know, we just can't help it. When um, So Jim and I would be on the phone and, uh, you know, and on calls pretty regularly and, you know, he's fascinated. Hey, how's, you know, how's things at the distillery going and the team and the spirits running and, you know, and uh, and then we'd just be talking about different flavours, you know. Jim is an absolute an ideas man and, uh, and, and we just love throwing things up at the wall. So we didn't start distilling our whiskey, our first whiskey, and uh, never made our first spirit until 2019. So, you know, from pro- concept from 2015, there's obviously quite a gap. And and how it happened, it was sort of, you know, na- it was almost so similar to how the first idea naturally bubbled up. And it's when they sometimes when ideas are too good not to do, you know, it, it, there's just, it naturally has a way that leads itself to coming to life. And, you know, that was through conversations and Jim and I over time and, you know, we challenge ourselves and we talk about about really coming down to imagine what the hell it would be like making a single malt whiskey in Byron Bay, you know, in a very hot subtropical climate. We pretty much get, you know, I'm in winter here, you know, I'm sitting here in T-shirt and shorts at 11 p.m. at night, you know. Um, we do get a winter but but not so much and, you know, we chat about, you know, uh, and I was always fascinated about picking Jim's brain because, you know, I talk about spirit and sense of place. You know, I love Isla, Isla single malt whiskies and really true Isla single malt whiskies that are also aged on Isla and, and you know, uh, you can taste it. You can taste that salinity. You know, there's this additional character that's to it. And I think that's such a stamp on what a great Isla, you know, single malt should be. Um, and we talk about it, well, how how would that rainforest climatic situation influence it? You know, and we've, we're right by the ocean as well. You know, how is that sort of, you know, kind of that coastal influence going to affect our whiskey? And what the hell would an Australian single malt whiskey taste like? And, you know, we talked about a lot of Australian whiskies and stuff and, and we just talk about it, right? And then it got to a point where this idea was we knew was too good not to bring to life. Um, and it really comes down to the concept here of, of our temperature and, our, and the unique climate environment that we have in Australia. You know, Jim's world has been the world of scotch of single malt whiskey, um, you know, and understanding that maturation from that side of things. And uh, I can tell you, even in even you know in, in the winter months in Scotland, it, there's cold, and then there's winter months in Scotland cold. Um, and you know the the, uh, um, uh, the just that how long things take to age, and but that's just the nature of what the Scotch industry is. Um, uh, and we're very fortunate. I had a bit of a concept of you know we're by no means the first Australian whiskey. We've we get to sort of walk from a path trodden by some some great distilleries uh, up and running and, you know, like the Larks of Sullivan's Cove, the Starwoods of the world. And so we get to tap in and get an idea. Well, we know in Australia we've got a faster maturation, but there's no whiskey that's getting matured in our really unique climatic situation. Um, 
And that was kind of that was kind of the idea that set it off. We grow incredible barley in Australia. We're known for being, uh, you know, uh, as farmers, we grow a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of grain. Um, and yeah, the 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 idea was too good, really. So, um, as two kids chatting about great ideas, <laughs> you know, happen. Um, this this idea was there and. So we set set the wheels into motion. You know, we had the still. Um, we had our still there, um, and as a classic Scottish pot still, great for gin. Don't get me wrong, but also perfect for whiskey. Um, so, um, so we started the process in Australia. Our, our laws around you know whiskey making are, are quite different. They're different all over the world, and one of those is you don't have to produce the, your water wash on site. Um, and literally a stone's throw from our distillery is one of Australia's uh, best craft beers, which is called Stoneham Wood. And we knew the founders and these guys have just made the most incredible beer. And um, it, was, it, it was a great partnership. So we were able to partner with Australia's kind of leading craft beer makers. Um, and uh, we worked on, you know, got to work on, on well, what's the structure and the, and the, you know, the malt build going to be and the mash build here and, you know, the yeast structures. We knew this type of spirit we wanted to create, you know, and and that was we didn't want it to be a, a scotch. We didn't want it to be anything other than what an Australian single malt is. But, you know, we with Jim when we're talking and especially from, you know, you know, when I was asking Jim, right, well, what's the type of spirit we want to create? And it's all about elegance. You know, you want to have this beautiful, delicate spirit. You know, you want to have this classic, beautiful, elegant fruit characters coming through your light, your kiwi, peach and pear, beautiful malt characteristics. Um, you know, you don't want it too sweet. You don't want it too overpowering. Um, and so we knew that that was kind of the flavor profile we were looking at. So we worked on a bunch of doing running different yeast trials and we settled on um, uh, on two different yeast strains um, uh, for for our, for our wash. And, uh, yeah, a sort of pretty classic times on a fermentation, about a sort of 72-hour fermentation um, using Australian unpeated barley. And oh, the spirit is just sensational. Um, we have this... Everything we set out to achieve, the beautiful delicateness to our spirit, um, you know, it's elegant. It's got this beautiful sweetness to the spirit, um, you know, great malt profile to there as well and that beautiful cereal note, but you're going to get these, these, these almost underlying tones of kind of tropical character. And when you think subtropical in Australia, it just makes sense. We've got that lychee, these sort of tin peaches, tin pears, uh, pears in syrup and this classic uh, there's a fruit called a custard apple i don't know if you ever tried one that's a almost like a prickly pear sort of maybe as a note to kind of um yeah reminisce to but uh that was that was where we we worked on our spirit and uh in 2019 um, we did a lot of trials and Jim came back over and then uh, we set the wheels into motion um, and he was here for a while and we got the spirit ride and, you know, uh, uh, got things running well. And, uh, yeah, again, you know, again, there was a no moment where, we, where, where a new child was born and a new spirit was made. And, and that first time 
I can tell you for any whiskey lovers or any spirit lovers, if there's a time in your life, if you have an opportunity to be in a still room when a, when a first cut gets made in a heart run of a new spirit, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, and, uh, and our Cape Byron whiskey was, uh, Cape Byron spirit was, was created and it is just sensational. It's so good. You can drink the new make on its own. But that's kind of what highlights and is the backbone to our spirit in to our whiskey, which is this beautiful elegance to our to our to our whiskey. Um, and I think, especially in Australia, um, you know, our wood profile that we're using, we use all ex bourbon casts, so imported from the states, especially for our for the original. Um, and our spirit was crafted to to balance in for that, um, you know, using ex bourbon because. What we have is a climate that promotes rapid aging. Now, to put this in perspective, I sent samples over to Jim of the final blend that we, it was only, you know, five barrels we were batting together um, for our first release. Um, it was about twelve hundred units, and uh, sent him a bunch of samples. And we got on the phone, and straight away said, "Eddie, I've got a sample. It's great, but you're pulling my leg." Like, you're taking me for a ride here, Eddie. Like, you've written three and a half years on it. What the hell? You know, it's not, you know, that's a, that's the same flavour profile that he sees from whiskeys he's been creating on Isla of around a seven-year-old, you know, um, six, seven-year-old whiskey. So we're getting a much, much quicker maturation. So for us, we're, we're conscious of that and always have been. So our warehouses, because we're in such a warm climate, um, we our aim is to not temperature control. We just want to take the heat curve out of summer. Is is what we tend to do. So we have uh, thick. We created these rainforest whiskey warehouses, really thick eco insulation. And the goal there is essentially they it well, on the days where it's reaching 30, 32 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm terrible with this. Uh, it's hot. I'll tell you that. Um, you know, instead of it being at that 30 degree, it's going to be at 24, 25. So your whiskey is not getting extracting too much. You know, when you get too much extraction, you're going to get a lot of tannin. Um, and what that can comes through in your whiskey is a lot of bitterness um, and, and unbalanced. You know, good things take time. You know, you've got to extract that at the right rate. And, uh, yeah, we get great levels of extraction. Um, but really, really good timing in our maturation as well. So, um, yeah, we, we, we think it's a pretty special climate and, you know, that we, we talk about it, it's where the rainforest meets the sea. Um, and you can sort of picture that and, and you know, you, you close your eyes when you're having your nose and having a sip and, and hopefully that'll take you there. If not, you can imagine you're standing in a rainforest drinking a whiskey. It's a beautiful place to be. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's crafted a pretty pretty special whiskey that we're we're pretty proud of and 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 people are enjoying, which is which is the main thing. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended Scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character, with both a high malt content at seventy percent and a high proportion of ex sherry casks. McLean's Nose is both a nod to Arden Market's rugged Western Peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula, and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. 
bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who, much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. And I've, I've thankfully gotten to try uh, a sample of that. And as I said, the, I really enjoyed it. The, the notes are spot on. It's uh, got a creaminess to it, a heft that uh, doesn't take away from the lightness of the spirit. I think it's more that the it's a light spirit. It's delicate, elegant, but also has um, enough of a mouthfeel that it's not effervescent. It just doesn't disappear. You really mm. do get to enjoy it. And uh, for the kind of coastal and rainforest in the middle there's for me at least just that minor bit of salinity in there that i tend to enjoy yeah. uh, it's not like someone's pouring salt into the whiskey or anything like that it's not even seaweed. it's nothing like that it's uh but for an example you mentioned that on isla you prefer isla whiskeys that are aged on isla mm. uh, which is something worth noting just because uh i think there's a perception that if something says an isla whiskey that it's it's that all of them are aged on isla which is not true um yeah you know isla is kind of the it's the same but the opposite direction of of what you're seeing where it's facing the west it's getting all those winds off the north atlantic uh hence a lot of the marine notes salinity in the peat that they use uh, and a couple, every, every distillery, I think has at least one warehouse that's on the Island. And that's yep. where you get the pictures of like the Lagavulin and the Ardbeg, the Lafroy, gets <laughs> those white buildings yep. on the coast and all that, which is great. Um, and without calling out any particular, uh, distillery, cause I don't know off the top of my head, which ones do and which ones don't, uh, most of the aging is not done on Isla. It's done on the mainland. Yep. Uh, and a lot of that is simply for practical purposes, there's just not enough room. There's not enough people. Uh, yeah. There's only 3,000 people on the entire island. There's a lot more sheep than there are people. Uh, <laughs> and there's not a lot of, you know, industrial roads and trucks. And so it's it's just more practical, yeah. which is fine yeah. to a point. It's fine to the point at which you should really say it's not. If I taste an Isla whiskey and I'm expecting that note, whether it's peated or unpeated, I'm still expecting that sea air note. Yeah. And uh, if I don't get it, I kind of have a feeling it wasn't aged on the island. Yeah. But you uh, get, you get, uh, that, that for me is, you know, and um, again, you, I go back to and something we're really proud of, you know, which is that, you know, you scratch the surface, scratch the sticker and what's, what's beneath it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and we, we, we're a big believer in true transparency and that's actually, you know, sustainability and transparency is such a big part of what we do. And, we're actually certified as a B Corp um, business now, a distillery, and really about that is about your impact on kind of just how you run your business. You know, as a business, as a force for good, but also without the bullshit is <laughs> a good yeah. way to put it. Um, but you you get you know Brooklady, Brook, you know two of my ones who are talking about really classic Truallas, and uh, look, actually I hate to use that term because it's not. We're just talking about whiskeys that we know are, are aged there and. You know, Kiloman and Brooklady are, are those two. You know, you've got a lot of the other distilleries. Yes, absolutely. Um, you just don't know if it's all there. 
But Brooke Laddie, you know, there was, there's just so many were incredible sort of whiskies. But I even just love the 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 sort of um, even some of their first releases. Like you, if you get just a, an Isla Bali, um, you know, mm. uh, it's even like a, forget the releases of what they were. Just a classic unpeated Isla Bali. There's such a creaminess to that spirit, um, and there's a delicateness, but that character of that salinity for me is just such a beautiful thing in a whiskey. Um, and I use, I, I like to talk and we talk a lot about it is, which is character. You know, we want character in our whiskey. You know, we don't want character. That's a bad character. You know, we want that, that stuff that makes our, our whiskey unique and has that puts our stamp on it. And, you know, you walk into our barrel houses and the hoops are, you know, are rusting off. If you're a kid, you know, like me, when I was growing up here, you ride your bike around, you're going to have a rusty chain on your bike. It's just a given, you know, because it's, we've got so much rich salt in the air um, and that works its way through to the cask. It does. It takes time and the levels it comes through um, are different, but, um, yeah, you, you will find those sort of subtle notes and and that's a like you were mentioning and describing, it's not a saltiness. It's not a, you're not going to taste, people aren't going to taste seawater in a whiskey and you look for it, but there is this very mild, you know, just a little note of it on the palate um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful flavour. Besides, you know, Isla in particular or um, or what Jim had done at Brickladi or, or Bamor, I heard another interview that uh, your mom is a scotch fan as well she doesn't mind a whiskey or two the old girl (laughs) so of course you know jim has a massive impact on on the style of spirit you also spoke to a couple of the other australian brands that had their own style as well Uh, when you were when you and jim were thinking about the style did you have any particular ones that you really said you know this is another one that i really like that maybe had nothing to do with jim but it was like that's a a whiskey i really admire or i like how it came out uh that you could look to as inspiration yeah i i I think it's definitely styles and, and it's really interesting to see what different styles are getting produced and and you know for me i really enjoy japanese style whiskeys and i think you can taste a lot of their you know, their approach and their cultural approach in that whiskey, there's such delicate notes to their their spirit. It's very clean. And for me, I've always been a fan of more clean whiskeys, not huge, massive sort of oak um, oak characteristics. And, and a lot of time is to actually, there's such beauty in the spirit itself. And my favourite whiskeys are when the spirit is shown, shines through rather than being overly dominated by the oak that it's in. And those, you know, the perfect whiskies that I have in my mind are the ones that have that balance of spirit and oak rather than just tasting the oak of where it's from. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I, I just drew so much inspiration, I think, from uh, from Jim's work that he did at Brook Laddie at the time. You know, you look at even some of those earlier releases of, of still today one of my favourite whiskies that's ever been produced there is just a classic the classic laddie it's just such an incredibly well-structured single malt whiskey you know the weight of the spirit a lot of people we don't talk about i think the weight of the spirit and my, or a lot of people don't really understand that but it's you know it's the texture the texture of the whiskey and for us and, and you picked up on it which is brilliant you know we have this beautiful 
kind of oily, viscous, luscious texture to our whiskey. You know, when when you as you sip it, you know, it'll coat your mouth. And that's all the oils coming through from the barley, really low and slow distillation or, or slow distillation um, and, and beautiful, beautiful spirit, you know. And then, and that's, you know, and, and for us, you'll see on our bottles and we're, you know, uh, we do not chill filter. Um, we're at a higher ABV at that 47%. So that's generally if you see whiskies around uh, 46 and above, you know, you, you, you're not going to see chill filtration used and we don't add any colour to our whiskey as well. Um, because the whiskey's so good as, as it is, you know, we work so hard to get all that sort of character into it. Um, but for me, I, I, I yeah, it, it's about those whiskies that really, again, it's probably actually s- similar probably to how it's just brought up. And, you know, I love products that really show where you can taste where it's from. You know, what's the uniqueness, the character of that place and that space of how it's coming into it. Um, and, and I think that's kind of really what led me, uh, where I was such and so enthralled with these different whiskies that Jim was producing, but I love it when you can taste a good Japanese single malt and you can taste the uniqueness to it or the different regions of, of, of Scotland, you can taste between a highland, a lowland, a space island, those ones that really kind of embody those. Even in Australia now, we're, we're such a young, you know, geez, we've only been making whiskey here in Australia for 30 years. We've actually have rolled the clock back. We've, we do have, um, you know, we, we used to make a lot more whiskey here in Australia, I mean, you know, bigger distilleries and closed down, but the craft whiskey movement's only about 30-odd years old. Started, you know, Bill Lark was, you know, kind of referred to him as the godfather of Australian single malt whiskey and re- really started it. And uh, now we've got, oh, in Australia, we've got about 500 distilleries. Um, you know, a lot of those are just making gin and about sort of would be about 250 to 300 whiskey distilleries now in Australia. And the opportunity of, 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 of different sort of um, nuance and flavour profiles, but we wanted to take the best of kind of classic traditional methods and stuff that you just don't mess with but then also overlaying it with, you know, our, our world and, and which is our landscape. And we've taken that best of really classic traditional spirit and um, distillation techniques. And, you know, I talk about this with our distilling team is, and we don't take it lightly, you know, we had a hell of a baton passed on to us from Jim. Um, and, you know, that baton was, you know, the, the, the kind of the passion and the heart of making and crafting incredible single malt whiskey. Um, and you don't stuff around with that. You know, you, you, you've got to put everything you've got into it to make sure that that spirit is incredible. Every time you're running the stills, you're pitching the yeast, you're blending in, you know, you, we're making incredible, incredible spirit here. We're so fortunate we get to do that. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's ensuring that that spirit really does capture the place where we're from. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I yeah. wafted around in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it it did for sure. And uh, just going back, I just want to jump back to something you said earlier uh, for, for reference. So you said just now that Australia, you've got 250 to 300 distilleries. Uh, size-wise, if you take away Alaska, Australia is about the same size as, as the continental US. I think it's it's mm. very, very slightly smaller, but it's it's comparably size so the only reason we're 
you know, the United States is ranked one step above is because of Alaska. So, you know, take yeah. that for what it's worth. Um, so, but if you, if you, mind you, you, you've got yeah. a few more people than Australia. I think we're about 28, yeah. 28 million population. Few, few more yeah. in the US. Few more. I, I think we've got about that in New York, to be honest. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so slightly different, of course, but, and you've got, I mean, if you've got a large area in the center of the country that you really, it's mainly desert or, you know, different tundras that it's just harder to live in. It's, you know, just like we have New Mexico, or Arizona, parts of that where it's just not feasible for people to live. So the concentration is understandably more around the coastline um, all around. Uh, so, uh, but the way that I was thinking about that too is, just as a comparison, you've got 30 years of the craft whiskey movement in Australia, you're already up to 250, 300 distilleries. That's still an amazing number for 28 million people, uh, mainly living not in the center of the country, mainly around the coasts and in the cities and areas surrounding them. And uh, of course, as, as we know, the vast majority of those whiskeys and those companies have not made it. Uh, outside of Australia, outside of the kind of global South, maybe if you have made it to the main houses in London, but um, particularly from a U.S. standpoint, a lot of them are unknown still in the U.S. And until recently, that went for Cape Byron as well. So when, um, so I guess the starter question for this is, what is your what does the local market look like for you in the Australian market that you're trying to uh, capture with Cape Byron? Yeah, we love a drink here in Australia. So uh, all of those distilleries are just servicing uh, thirsty mouths. Um, no, we, uh, yeah, it, it has been a boom. And I think there's been a globally a boom of, of craft distilling. Look, when we use those about 500, you know, licenses now that that are that are operating, so many of those are kind of one, two person, what we call, you know, reference sort of mum and pop, um, uh, you know, uh, pop sort of distilleries, and 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 that's such a great thing, you know, like in Australia, we such a got such beautiful landscapes and such broad land and different areas, and. And all these small, tiny little distilleries are popping up. So if you're going for a holiday here, there might be two or three micro distilleries and a few breweries. And you know, we we, we were renowned in Australia. We've got an we've got a great industry, a wine industry, and we're we're quite you know internationally renowned for the quality that we produce. Um, beer has been one. We 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 make great beer as well. Um, but but spirits, the craft spirits movement. You know, I use the term 30 years, you know, when we started uh, in 2016, we were only about one of, oh, there was only about 100 distilleries operating. And when I'm saying 100, there was probably only about 15 more, you know, uh, really that were giving it a crack and operating. So um, it, it's been growing. There's definitely a lot more competition that's happening in Australia, but to the consumer, they get to taste all of these incredible spirits that capture all these different micro regions um, and you know if, as consumers now what's great is more people are getting educated about spirit and craft spirit and and you know this this movement toward more more producers more suppliers you know is 
people get educated about what is great spirits or what spirits are. You know, we're taking wine drinkers, beer drinkers, and educating them about, hey, if you haven't tried whiskey or gin, well, people have these pre, you know, the, these sort of concepts about why they don't like it. Oh, no, that's a grandma's drink or, you know, I, you know, a lot of time it's your tonic, you drink it with it, you know, not necessarily the gin itself. And, uh, yeah, so it's just been definitely a boom. Uh, it is getting more competitive. Um, but what we're doing is we're not competing against each other. The, I think of Australian spirits that are now consumed uh, is only about 6%, I think, of the spirits. So that puts it in perspective. The The biggest one we go up against is the, is the imported spirits. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of those, obviously, we can't produce here ourselves. Tequila is a great example. <laughs> and bourbon is an even better example. Um, but more people are getting educated about spirits and they will continue to turn to, you know, there's a global movement about locality and people turning and, and enjoying products made locally. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, and we pretty excited to be a part of that, but also, to, to to kind of we we get to bring a lot of sort of young distilleries and people that are starting through and especially from our sustainability practice practices as a distillery we open our doors and we want to bring as many people through and educate as many people about you know what not to do from all the things that we've done and done them three times over and you know how to manage waste and how to be as you know kind of sustainably minded and looking at your energy usage and uh yeah it's 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 a very inclusive and, and welcoming industry once you, you you know when you're in there um i think the fact that we all make alcohol also helps you know <laughs> definitely i mean there there are many way, worse ways to spend your day than, yeah <laughs> uh, making and trying alcohol for sure yeah so so that's the australian market as you uh expand and become one of those distilleries from Australia that get to go global. Uh, what have been kind of the, the, let's say the low hanging fruit and what have been some of the challenges in going global? Yeah, it's, it, you know, the, the biggest thing is, does your bread, you know, do we have a purpose and a reason to actually exist in these markets? And that's, those are the questions that we ask ourselves. And and that was probably the biggest ones going into the States. Um, it, you know, we, we truly believe that we've got a really incredible, you know, spirit, but also, you know, a reason for being and that, we would like to think that customers might resonate to, you know, to our spirit about, geez, the uniqueness, Australian rainforest, botan- hey, and I didn't even know Australia had rainforest, let alone botanicals, you make a gin from it, and a proposition of Australian whiskey. Like, well, that is such a new world concept. And for whiskey drinkers, um, and, you know, that that's a pretty exciting thing. So, so I suppose that those are the questions that we really ask ourselves. And, and to be honest, still asking ourselves and then going, well, well, how do we make sure that we connect with those customers that are, that are, that are interested or, um, you know, and, and that's all coming down to education. And, and it's been great so far. So for us, we're, we're selling to about sort of, how are we, about 10 different countries or 10 to 12 different countries now, um, you know, in, in England, in Germany, 
um, you know, a lot through Southeast Asia uh, and Asian different Asian countries as well. Uh, and yeah, we with launching in the US around six months ago. So um, the launch, we always had an eye on the state. Um, it hasn't been. It was just making sure that we had a firstly found a right partner and 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 uh, in Anthem we Anthem Imports and Spirits we we found that and because we wanted to find partners that you know really really believed in great spirits and great brands you know that are after things that aren't just unique but uh, you know are, are also that that they know will kind of resonate to customers and drinkers and. Uh, yeah, so for us, our job now is to, uh, you know, to to connect people to to our Brookies gin and to our Cape Byron single malt whiskey, and we think that, um, yeah, hopefully there's a there's a bit of an intrigue there um, because the spirit's sensational, and we've got the awards and accolades to show that, um, you know, our, our gin has been picked up and now a trophy cabinet full of golds and double golds at the world San Francisco and our whiskey that's only been out for less than a year is oh picked up you know 90 actually only just the other day we were talking before it's it, it's one one best in class at the sip awards and also 95 points and best in class at the USA spirits um just the other week so uh yeah, it's 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 incredible to get those accolades because geez, we work so hard to that, and you know when you know you make such a good thing, uh, that that means nothing unless the people drinking it enjoy it, uh, and uh, yeah, to have those sort of um, for that to be tried and you know tried and sort of uh, put under scrutiny and uh, and people enjoying the spirits always it always always helps when we're going in, especially when we're venturing into new markets and uh, uh, yeah so yeah the states has definitely been a, a, on our on our mind for some time you know in the incredible whiskey market and there's so much interest in new world whiskies um, and and different different whiskies in particular in the single malt world and and also in the gin category too, you know, um, you know, of new world gins and, and this exploration and and trial and, 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 and you know, finding these new spirits. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll find, find a fair few people that might enjoy a drop or two of our Brookies and Cape Byron. Sure. And uh, uh, one quick tech, technical question that I uh, forgot to ask earlier. When you're talking yeah. about your your wart and the mash, yep. um, are you using a clear or cloudy wart? Cloudy. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, that can go either way in Scotland. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. For us, it's all about, yeah, all about the character and the flavor. So it's, it's a little bit different because we don't produce it uh, on site ourselves. And uh, uh, look, you know that it's a positive, but also creates challenges. And we're really fortunate with the distance and location. Um, so it'll be produced, and you know, coming out of the mash tun at about 10 a.m. It'll be at the distillery by you know in, in three hours later, uh, all unfermented, um, and you know, such minimal time and in vessels, so we're not getting any sort of any any natural yeast or any sort of bacteria growth growing in there. Uh, and then we can also, you know, uh, and we do a really fast, rapid fermentation, but we're able to control our, uh, the hotter temperature spikes for fermentation. Again, the only thing we're concerned about is is in uh, in summer. 
um, you know, winter for us. Again, we barely have one. And I and I think I remember when um, I've never been to 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 a lot of the, a lot of bourbon distilleries. Um, it's actually, you know, kicking myself. Uh, that's that's on the list. But I know that a lot of bourbon distilleries will actually temperature control warehouses in winter to make sure that they're there's year long maturation because when barrels drop below seven degrees, they're Celsius, they're, they're essentially, or when they're getting cold, they lie dormant. And as distillers, uh, you know, and as distilleries, we want our whiskey to be kissing that oak and making beautiful whiskey all year long, but, uh, but making sure it's not happening too quick. So um, yeah, the, that, the, the, the temperature for us has just been, it's been really interesting. Like we, um, you know, a bit of a nerdy thing, but we love it. So we have these temperature maps all throughout our warehouses and distilleries. We essentially put temperature probes all, all through um, and we get to track it where, you know, where are those fluctuations and, you know, you have these concepts here of, um, you know, where we think those temperatures will go and, and, and keeping consistent because you don't want it with temperature, you don't want it too consistent. If it's too consistent, you want fluctuation and variation in your whiskey. You know, whiskey's a living, breathing thing in these barrels. You know, when it's warm, you know, it's like the pores on your skin, they'll open up. The spirit will drive into the staves, you know, drive in further. And when it's colder, when it's cooler, it'll, it'll, it'll come, you know, it'll kind of extract back out. So you want that constant movement. And that happens on a daily temperature, right? colder in the morning, warmer in the middle of the day, even on a daily piece. So if you control it so much, so, um, you know, we want to have that quite natural movement still, but we're just taking out, um, taking out a lot of that top, top piece. And, uh, yeah, it's so far so good. We're, we've got, um, definitely a lot more experimentation around temperature control. And, um, one of the things we actually did, um, we built a, you know, this essentially looks like a really, really big shed tin, but uh, but it's a, a sort of quite um, delicately, you know, sort of engineered building um, with a level of sort of we've got really thick eco wool insulation on the roofs and the walls, and we actually have a five metre waterfall running inside our warehouse. So we have a rainforest waterfall running in the middle of our barrel house. Um, you know, that water is having an impact and reducing that temperature, ensuring the humidity is there. But also just the beauty of having a, rain, a waterfall in the middle of a barrel house is uh, is something to enjoy while you're sipping a whiskey. I was going to say, that sounds like a paradise right there. Like I love walk, <laughs> I love that smell of walking into a rickhouse and looking and seeing all the barrels, yeah. but you put a waterfall in the middle of that. I'll retire there tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> So uh, one more question for you. Yep. And um, of course, as, as always, there's so many things we, we just couldn't cover in one episode. There are uh, other yeah. products, the Mac, the, um, these different gins, the barrel age Mac, which is even more intriguing. The barrel age uh, Mac is a cracker. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, you can, uh, I encourage people to check out on the website uh, that we links to the yep. website and products uh, in the show notes for sure. So plenty of things that we didn't get to. And, and as they come to the U.S., uh, I'll, if they come to the U.S., of course, but as the things come to the U.S., I'll be sure to announce them and, and uh, if possible, make them available. But um, so the, the last question I wanted to ask you is about uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. And the way that I want to frame it is that 
obviously Jim McEwen has, he's got his own legacy just by nature of what he's done. Um, and in many ways, I think of, as I was thinking about this interview and about how Kate Byron developed, um, I was also thinking about uh, the late Dr. Jim Swan and mm-hmm. he, how many you know distilleries he impacted over the course of his life, both through founding and consulting and all these things. Now, some of them are still pretty new and they're still kind of dependent on his legacy to, to build on, but some of his earlier ones, I'm thinking like Kabbalon and um, yeah. even M&H, I would say in, in Tel Aviv, these have grown so that of course his legacy is part of it, but they've also been able to set their own standards and legacies for what their creators are doing past uh, Dr. Swan. So when you look to the future, you've been very clear that you want this to be a generational business, just like the family farm is that uh, there's no, you know, buyout plan for this. Yep. So uh, beyond the legacy that Jim McEwen brings to this brand and this distillery, what legacy do you want to be part of it? It's a great question. Um, you know, we, we, on farm and when you when you see and come witness the distillery you know it's literally sits in the middle in the heart of our farm um and before the distillery you know we talk about the roots that were sort of planted by the family and that that really comes from our real love for land and 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 using you know giving back and kind of trying to make the leave the world in a better place than what we came into it um, and through the distillery as a medium, we get to use that to educate people about about that. And I think spirits is one of the most incredible mediums to do that. You know, the world, you know, it's such a global, global, you know, look at what an example here now, you know, um, from the US to Australia and, and you know, the, the community around single malt whiskey and also gin is just incredible. But for, yeah, for me personally, the legacy um, is very much the goal is generational. Um, the distillery is tied to our family farm and that's such a, a unique family asset that we would never be able to untie those uh, and nor would we because that's just really our life life's work on the parents and in particular, you know, um, I've got a, even a, a fresh baby boy who's only four weeks old and, uh, you know, and, and my brother's got three little ones and, you know, the excitement about what a generational piece and giving them and also just educating, you know, um, our family, our community and generations about, you know, what a world that they can leave and what mark that they can sort of leave and put a stamp onto. Um, But you look at people like the world of, you know, you know, you, you look at and track them, Jim's career and the legacy that he's left. You know, he has made such an impact on so many people, but the industry as a whole and all through a positive light. Um, you know, there is there is not many people that have had that impact and that's just been a dedication and, and a pure love for what he's done. Um, and he has made that from staying true to his craft and, and really trying to craft and show spirits that represent his you know, his area, his land and where he's from. So I suppose from a legacy piece, if if if, if I can, uh, I suppose, you know, um, 
uh, ha, you know, be doing that and showcasing, crafting great spirits, you know, uncompromising quality and really ones that showcase our land and our region and pe- get people inspired as well by um, by learning and more and connecting about the land. And, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, as as a generation that what we can do with creating great things, we can also work hand in hand with having a positive impact in the environment as well. And, you know, I think that's when the great things happen. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very much hoping that, uh, you know, definitely in many, 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 many years to come and that day where I'm dead and gone that, you know, that our stills will still be running and our spirit will still be getting produced and, and to have our spirit maybe enjoyed and consumed and known about throughout throughout different parts of the world and known for the reasons that we've been talking about today is, you know, that would be a pretty incredible piece. Fantastic. I think it's a great way to end this. And it's now, as it is now officially uh, tomorrow, where you are, um, that is a great way to end the interview. So Eddie, thank you again for coming on, for staying up late, for um, coming on with a four week old uh, somewhere else, which, you know, bravo for you. Um, I, I appreciate the, I tell you uh, what, the week, I've, I've had, a, I've had, a, I've had one and a half whiskey since I've been going, I've been needing to get a little, little lifeblood uh, by going through, but uh, it's actually, it's feeding time right now. So no doubt my wife is in the room next door and little Jude is, uh, is up listening in. <laughs> well, Start them learning early. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'll have more info in the show notes about where you can find the products that are in the U.S. If you're uh, an international listener, you might have a little more um, opportunity. But uh, hopefully, as things grow and as things go, we'll get you to even more places. So hang on with me for just a second, Eddie. And uh, this has been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast coming to you from New York City and from Cape Byron, Australia, in two different days. Thanks, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month, barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the barrel share club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.